up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to the 26th episode of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. As always, thank you for tuning in. On this episode, we'll get to hear from Brad and Skelly of 710 Labs, who are based both out of Oakland and Denver. I was stoked to get to talk to one of the biggest vertically integrated hash companies in the world, really, and we get to dig in about what motivates their visions, the philosophies behind their products, their tier system, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for that. A special shout out to Nika T of Essential Extracts for the introduction, and as always, showing love to the platform. Of course, I also want to give love to the people that show us the most love, the people that make up our community on Patreon. They are the people who make this all happen. It's been wild to see the community grow, cool to meet so many like-minded people and develop friendships, but mostly it's been cool to see people connecting with one another. You know, in a world that's full of individuality, it's nice to see people bond over their love for this plant, no matter how different they may be. So if you ever want to be part of the community and also have access to extra interviews, early releases, the chat, stickers, shirts, posters, whatever, visit our link in the Instagram bio or visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn big shout out to our sponsors rosin evolution the best bags in the game you can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on instagram at rosinevolution100 that's the number 100 and use our savings code the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI 710, to save an additional 5% on their already fair prices. Shout out to our homies, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. You can visit them at powersplates.com, that's P O W E R S plates.com, or on Instagram at Powers Plates. The guys at Powers Plates are really focused on providing you the highest grade equipment on the market. Every aspect of their press is high grade. Not only is their press assembled in the US, but every single component they use in their presses are top of the line. Their heaters are high end. Their thermal coupler actually runs an algorithm to auto learn how to optimize the press function. To some, those may be things they don't think about or care about, but if you're one of the small majority of people that is hyper-focused on being a master craftsman, then you need to be using the highest grade equipment. So if you're looking for a rosin press and you want the highest end press on the high end market, visit powersplates.com, that's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com and pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press and use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I to save $75 off their four by eight presses. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X starsociety.com. Or on Instagram, the number six underscore star underscore society. If you're listening, there's a good chance that you like hash. Or if you stick around, there's a probability that you'll end up liking hash. So if you want some gear to reflect your love for hash, definitely check out Six Star Society and their variety of cool designs. You know, now that face masks are a thing, they did a collab with the legend Eric Nugshots to bring you a unique mask that not only looks cool, but introduces others to the world of trichome farming. 
They've also brought back a few of their sold out designs in small batches, including their six star design, which is inspired by the starter logo. So definitely keep an eye out for those. So if you want gear to show your love for hash, visit our homies Six Star Society at sixstarsociety.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order. And last but not least, a shout out to our homies and innovators, Tele Polare, who are always coming up with creative solutions to some of Hashmaker's most common obstacles like condensation. Now, if you listen to the podcast, you likely know that Pele Polares specializes in thermal jacketing systems. But one of the things I haven't touched on is the technology behind their thermal jackets. They're made mostly of high-grade rubber that uses closed cell technology and is finished in a nylon that's used in programs like NASA and wetsuits for deep sea divers. So it's some serious gear. Their main motto is keep it colder for longer. But how does that work? Well, in a very simplistic way, their jackets are made with high-grade material that is denser and it seriously slows down the three ways that heat is transferred. So if you want help in battling condensation during your washes, visit our homies Pele Polare at pelepolareco.com. Check out all the cool gear that they have, including their thermal jackets, and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order. I thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I am super excited to be here with both Brad and Skelly of 710 Labs. You can follow them on Instagram at 710 Labs, that's 710, or on their educational page at 710 Labs EDU, or of course on their website 710labs.com. Welcome, dudes. I am incredibly appreciative of both of you taking the time to talk. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you and been following you for a while and love what you're doing for the hash community. Oh, man, I, I sincerely appreciate that. And, you know, I, I typically start these on the lighter note, but I just saw this. So rip to screech, uh, a.k.a. Dustin Diamond of Saved by the Bell. Dude just died. So definitely one of my favorite shows growing up. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it's weird. You see so many people pass away, but that was one that kind of resonated with me because it was just right around the same time that I grew up. And like you said, I was a fan of the show. So today is a Monday and. You know, the release will happen next Monday. So I just want to make sure that you guys are following your own number one hash club rule, which is, did you smoke your hash on Solventless Sunday? <laughs> of course, man. Of course. I uh, went through a gram of Sherb Pops water hash and some Sunday driver water hash that I'm still dabbing now. And uh, yeah, smoked quite, quite, a bit of, quite a bit of hash yesterday. I, I wish I still had Sherb Pops. <laughs> I've been out of that for like a few weeks, but um, I was smoking some Bruce Banner, which is a great cultivar, which we're bringing back. It hasn't been around for a bit. It's a predecessor to our Ghost Hulk, which is one of my favorites. And it's kind of cool just to bring its father or mother into the picture. Totally. For sure. And so what is that Sherb Pops that you were talking about, though, since both of you are smoking on it? Or still he wishes he had it. Yeah, it's a unique, so here's the deal with it. It's a unique turf profile that we found from a pack of seeds we got from a, a breeder called Evermore Genetics out of Santa Cruz. It's a Sunset Sherbert times Otter Pops. And it's just a super unique profile. It turns like a purple hint. The problem with it is it doesn't yield very well, but Skelly and I mandated that we still want to run it, even though it's 
a, a loss leader per se because we lose money on it since it yields so poorly. But the flavor is just so unique and the high is great. It's, it's one of those that gets me like gasping for air every time I smoke it, like in the best <laughs> way possible. And very strong on the shirt, like that funky, sweet, fruity. Yeah, it, it really is very strong on the shirt, yeah. which is rare to find in solventless forms. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I'm curious, like, what kind of dabbers you guys are? Like, you take small tabs, you're big dabbers, you're taking grams at a time? Um, I'd say we're about medium. Da- I'm sorry, not we. I'm medium dabber. Skelly's kind of had an evolution of his dabs. I've always been right around that small to medium. You know, other than, like, back in the day when we were dropping, like, grams <laughs> on and cannabis cups and shit. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I was about to say, when I met Brad, we were at Everdream Studio, and he just immediately dropped the gram dab and then made me take the biggest dab of my life, which was like <laughs> 6.7 and just like obliterated me. <laughs> so, so we used to dab a lot, like bigger in the sense of the dab. I know more nowadays I'm more so like a flavor saver, like taking, I want to say a 0.1 to 0.2 to 0.3 if I'm getting big and you know, go, you know, I probably do go through like a gram a day or gram every other day, but not like all in one scoop as I used to. Right. Skelly smokes more flour than me. So I go through probably a gram to two grams a day, but uh, he goes through way more flour than me. That's for sure. But you're also still smoking flour bread? Yeah, I, I smoke, you know, probably three grams of flour a day on average. But yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you know, Back to the solventless Sunday concept. I'm curious if you could kind of break down your philosophy on that. Yeah, um, it's all just a joke, <laughs> to be honest. Um, we're not very serious with it in terms of like, oh, this is a club and we need to follow the rules. Like we just kind of joke around. For sure. Took the fight club kind of motto. But yeah, I mean, look, it's good to have a day where you're just smoking water, hash, and flour, the pure essence of the plant, right? So. There is some, some, you know, truth underlying there, but uh, it's that full body relaxed day. You want to fucking let, gap, let go, you know. Uh, Mondays I'm smoking rosin mostly because, like, I want to get the energy going and it doesn't lay me out like flour and ash does. So Sundays I, I just, like, personally, I, it, it came from, like, just I'm going to devote this day to smoking water, ash, and flour only. So call it solvent. I mean, people were calling it solvent on Sunday before us. We kind of just ran with it. And yeah, just a lot of the philosophy comes from a lack of education about water hash and the exact consumption of it and how maybe it's a bit more finicky on your banger and harder to hit exactly perfectly. But we really think it's rewarding and and great to smoke it. And just so many people are coming on to the solventless wave, but all they want is rosin. And they're just like that water hash is something odd to them. So we wanted to like it's a good opportunity to educate about water hash and just to show how, Hey, it's, it's honestly both of our probably favorite smoke. We can't go by without the water hash. And like, I love the rosin too. Not to say that I don't smoke it because I smoke rosin all the time as well, but I never, I'll always have a jar of water hash cracked. And that's my favorite to think. Yeah, that's dope, man. I obviously I'm totally with the educational aspect of that. And you know, Brad, you brought up an interesting point, the full body high. Do you feel the same way, Skelly? Like, do you feel like unadulterated hash, you know, and as unadulterated as it can be in water and then in a freeze dryer or however, you know, it, it's, it's being dried. 
is that the closest you can get to smoking flour in a concentrate? Like that feeling? That is how I feel. Just as someone who loves the flower as well and strives to just, I love the growing flowering female cannabis plant. It has just the most incredible sense and just like, just there's so much magic to it that we try to capture that and to take the heads in such a raw, unadulterated form and just to release them. Here are the resin glands of the plant. We've cleaned them very precisely and now they're going to melt down into an oil for you to consume. I, I just think that there's something really special about that. Super well, well said. It's just, you know, look, I was so anti-water hash back in like, not anti, but like anti-dabbing it, I should say, because I, I always enjoyed water hash in a joint and then Amsterdam and kind of temple balls and the old school Moroccan hash I loved growing up and fucking throwing it on my bong hits or throwing it in a joint or a blunt. But I guess what I'm saying is when dab, when people start dabbing water hash like 2009, 2010, maybe even sooner, 2008, I always got that char and never got the flavor I was looking for that I got from BHO. And it wasn't until about 2012, 13, maybe even 14 when there was uh, something, we went to Seattle and the guys out there were making hash that melted fully. And also it had a lot to do with the, the temperature of the nail. Like I wasn't aware that you needed to do it so much cooler for quite a few years and call me ignorant, dumb, whatever you want, but it took a little bit of learning and practice to really dial it in. And I don't think there is, if you hit water hash, if those heads melt perfectly at the perfect temperature, like show me a better dab on the planet. Like I, I can't, I don't, I can't find them, but, but it gets a bad rap because people don't know how to smoke it properly. So I'm glad Skelly brought that up because we do like to use Sundays for an educational, just specifically on water hash. Like People go years without smoking water hash because they don't, or they tried it once and won't smoke it again because of that same experience. But then once you get it, it's like, we get DMs all the time. It's like, man, I finally got on the water hash train. Thank you so much. Like, you know, it's a, it's a game changer. So. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's obviously a lot of different factors in that. I, one of them is the educational aspect. And the other thing is uh, like you talked about going up to Seattle and seeing some, you know, bomb hash is the game has also kind of been like elevated right? It's gotten to a point where you can dab water hash and it's, it's not leaving almost any char. There is that six star or whatever you want to call it, you know, and I'm going to give you guys a little flack because you are such an educational company, but there was a post that you guys made that was said something like water hash, full melt, ice oil, ice wax, bubble hash, six star, hashish, call it whatever you want. Who cares what you call it? The shit is pretty. And I agree with the fact that nice water hash is pretty, but I do care what we call it in the sense of, I feel like there's already so much confusion on the consumer market. Your thoughts? I don't know. I could, I could go, I could go both ways in that. I kind of do like to just uh, embrace the lingo and just be like unified in a way. I love the way that there are so many different things that we call it. Like we used to call it Jermichael back in the day, which is there's no sense in that at all. But like <laughs> great six star being Jermichael, you got that great Jermichael. It, it was fun. And I'm not saying that we were right for doing that, but I, I just, I like that element of it too, where we recognize what everyone's calling it. And clearly we have our say in it and what we officially label it on our packaging and most of the time. But I'd also just embrace people like having fun with this subculture and calling it what they please and what makes them happy too. 
Yeah. I, uh, it's funny, like, as Skelly was talking, I was thinking about it, and then cannabis is the same way, right? People call it weed, pot, fucking herb, you know, so it is that playful element of this culture that, that we do love, but there is an element of, of, of confusion. There's no, there's no doubt about it. For, for, and it's not an element of confusion for the 1% that's smoking, that, that is the weed snob, nerd, sommelier, whatever you want to call them. But for the rest of the community, it's confusing. What, how is bubble hash different than water hash? How is ice wax different? So, so I get what you're saying. And it, it's tough. It's like, and it's also like, you know, people get confused about the Moroccan hash. Is it the same thing? Am I smoking the same thing? So it's like, I hear you. And that's why, and to be frank, that's why we just called it water hash when we launched this product, because it's so straightforward. It's hash that's made using ice and water. And, um, you know, we, we went with that for a reason and we'd like the, the industry to standardize it. And we think that it's helped a little. I see other companies uh, are doing that, um, like LaserCat and a few others, but we should all, we should all probably call it the same thing at some point. So we can get the education. I mean, yes, in my opinion, education is the most important part about this plant, getting people to understand it. So it's probably an essential part, but I got with Skelly also. I love the fun nature of it as well. So. Yeah. And I'm with you guys. Like I said, I was just giving you flack. I think the, the cultural aspect of it is cool. Like you both said, but yeah, it's, it's always interesting to, to talk about that with like people that aren't part of this 1% as you called us, which funny enough, is probably one of the very few 1% I'm part of is being a weed snob uh, in essence, you know? So I'm curious, Brad, having been in the industry for a while now and seeing kind of like these change in patterns and, you brought up the BHO a little earlier. Do you see that 1% growing or do you only see the pool of that 1% growing? Does that ratio stay the same? Yeah, actually, it's funny. I, we, we, uh, we had our CMO put together like a data deck of the, of the market share and what, what it is. It's actually 2%, I think, of people that are actually dabbing right now. But it's a good question. You know, I do think it's going to get bigger. I do. I think as the hardware and devices around the product get more evolved, I think more people will use it if it's not so hard to consume. Although people like us love the ceremony around it, right? That's one of the best parts about it. Just like love the torch, love heating it up. Like I don't get like, look, I love the Puffco Pro. I use it for the beach or when I'm traveling. I don't get the same joy as when I'm taking a dab still to this day. So, but I, I do see that growing both deeper in the 2% as well as spreading out to more like, I think in the next 20 years, we'll probably be around 10% of people will be dabbing. I, I hope I'd like to see it. I mean, that's, that's hopeful. Yeah. It's a, it's a potential possibility. And we know that the either way that is expanding because the market is expanding and cannabis is becoming normalized. we might be on the tiptoes of nationwide legalization. I, I do think that that number, it's going to grow usually, but I don't know if the percentage of the overall is going to grow over time, just because I think such a wide range of people in this society are going to smoke pot. If 50% of them already do when it's illegal, it's probably going to be a high percentage. So who knows if that niche percentage is also going to expand or just kind of maintain where it is. But either way, I know that our niche will be growing and there's going to be a lot more people coming into what we're doing. For sure. I agree with that, man. You know, let's talk about variety is the spice of life for that concept. And, you know, Skelly, you, you said 
even if you're smoking rosin, you always have, you know, a cracked jar of some water hash ready to go. I get the idea from both of you that if you had to choose one thing, maybe solventless would be the way for you. So that being the case, I'm curious why 710 Labs is not a solventless only company. Good question. I'd say it's basic, like to me, it's because of our love of the cultivars and the different plants. And some of these plants are knockout from our pheno hunts that we'll fall in love with, we'll love the terpene profile of, but the only way that it makes sense to extract it is through a non-solve, like, you know, not a solventless means. And yeah, so sometimes we need to do that. And I know that both of us are very, uh, our main business is solventless hash. And it is what we smoke all day, not to say that we don't smoke BHO. But yeah, I just know that it's like basically due to the restrictions on the genetics and the cannabis plants, we wouldn't want to just throw away some of our favorite phenos and we'd still want to embrace them. Although I think as, you know, I'll, I'll let Brad jump on. No, I think that's exactly right. It's, uh, I think in anything like variety is really important. I just, you know, like anything I consume, I always get sick of over time. Right. So you always want to switch it up. And that's kind of my theory with the varieties of spice of life. And, I've found that our consumers feel the same way. Like we'll hear after three months, if they have the same bootylicious and sour tangy in that store that they shop at, they want something new and we totally get it. And we talk to our sales team, make it happen for them. But long story short, I think Skelly hit the nail on the head. Like what we've learned so much about this plant over the last 12 years. And since Skelly and I've been working together five or six is that, you know, this plant produces resin in such different ways. And, and there's some plants that look great and produce great nug structure for flour that we love and the flavor is great. There's some that's wispy and we would never dry as flour, but the terps are great. And it's just like our variety, our, our versatility, should I say, uh, uh, to be able to dry flour, to extract hydrocarbon-wise and to extract solventlessly has set us apart a little bit from um, our competition and, 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 only out of the intention of us producing the best for each plant, not because like, oh, we think we have to do this to compete. It's more like, no, we're respecting the plant and the plant tells us what it wants to be extracted with, essentially. And even as hash heads, I don't think any of us have smoked hash our entire dabbing career. Most of us sloped from smoking slabs, smoking shatter, smoking diamond sauce to a solventless place. So it's kind of cool to provide that to new buyers that what they do is they do smoke BHO and they're interested in that as a little group. And then they grab some, they say, Oh, I heard 710 labs is really great with their batter or their diamond sauce. They grab that. And then they say, I'm going to try that rosin stuff. And then maybe they end up educating themselves and sloping upwards in the product category that, that they like and they identify with and that they use. And I know that's happened in my personal life too. I can't, the pictures of me in like 2010 are definitely going to be me dabbing some shatter, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, I would put confidently our BHO quality products up against anyone on the planet. Like I, I truly believe that we make some of the best, if not the best BHO products on the planet. So we don't take it lightly because we smoke more solventless, but the BHO quality that we put out these days is 
wildly impressive to me from doing this for the last 12 years because I saw what we were making 12 years ago in my backyard and right. it's come a long fucking way for sure. Uh, yeah. Time. And as like a subset question, just into the, to the butane extraction is I saw that California and Colorado, they have different regulations when it comes to PPM or parts per million of butane, I guess, residual in these hash oils and since you guys are operating in both states and doing it well do you follow the guidelines for example to the lower state with that or do you follow the guideline per state it's funny we follow just our own guidelines um so every batch has to has to come in under a thousand parts per million uh we shoot for a hundred parts per million or less but we know we won't release anything uh that's above a thousand parts per million and uh you know I think I don't even keep up with it because it changes so often, but I think California are allowed 5,000 and Colorado, you're allowed 12. I don't even remember to be honest, 3,000. I'm not sure, but, uh, and I, I sound uneducated. We just, we keep it at our own standard that we know is safe. We know it's, it's, it's safe. So most of our batches are around a hundred. So it, it's very, very small on the PPM level. And that is like Brad saying, that's just an internal standard, uh, standard operating procedure that we have in both states that guarantee us well below both of the regulated margins. So Yeah, I would say that's a great uh, philosophy. You know, you have your own standard and it's already set high and, you know, there's no need to, to change it even with the uh, regulations. So, you know, I'm, I'm with that. I'm curious, as a successful vertically integrated hash company, again, this is me asking you for hypotheticals, but... Do you see the day that a vertically integrated hash company can be profitable or successful, however you may define that, by being a solventless only company? Yes, 100%. I think that day is is going to come. That's like where the wave of extraction is going to be. I don't know if the market's ready for it quite yet because a lot of people are still, um, are still learning. But I, I do think that that is a business model that could be successful and um, will be successful, especially with the different regulations in different states where maybe in one state you could have a very small license. Um, I know we both love like all greens and I'd imagine on, on their own terms, they're pretty successful. And yeah. It's all, it's all relative, right? It's like, right. What's success? <laughs> yeah. That conversation too. But yeah, I mean, I think, there's a lot of companies that can be successful just producing solventless products on a small scale. It's just like a craft producer of, you know, small champagne grows, or it could a number of different types of analogies in this world. But I, sorry, was the question, are we all, all, only going to be solventless one day? No, it was just no. Do you think in general that someone could be successful with that business. Got it. Got it. That's a, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate you sharing on that. And, you know, Brad, you brought up an interesting point earlier about having respect for the plant and basically having the plant almost guide you to what it wants, the extraction that it wants. So let's talk about extraction methods and how it relates to yields and how that relates to viability. Well, let's go handle that one. Well, we, we do a really good job pheno hunting. So we do find great flavorful yielders that make sense in our production model. With that being said, 
we like we just brought up with the sherb pops before. It's something that doesn't really make sense in our production model. Full transparency is yielding somewhere in the twos. It's just, it's absolutely delicious and we're going to run it. Maybe it's not going to be something that we can rely on, but it's, it's something that we want in the mix just because it's important. And maybe if that one is a two, we, we have a six in the lineup that's going to make up for that other 2%. So, hey, let's think of them both as a four maybe for that month. So that's, that's kind of the way that we'll get, we'll get by that way. And we just wouldn't want to only relegate ourselves to four and five and six percenters because it's, it's just not what we're about. We, we need to have some like rare flavorful stuff that we're really looking forward to and that we can't wait to smoke ourselves in the lineup. And, and to add on to that, that's why it's one of the reasons why we created this tier system, right? So that we can still run a shirt pops or a Skittles. that doesn't yield that well, but we know it's going to be super flavorful if we nail it every time. Uh, which we, we've gotten to do on those few, those two cultivars. There's a bunch of others too, but we can charge a little more to justify it, right? So it's it's uh, but you know, look, we can't put it in production year round. But Skelly and I just went over the production report for 2021 with with our director of cultivation, and uh, we have things that we label. This is going to go in high production. This is going to go in medium production. This is going to go in low production, and we sub those sub those in as we see fit for the year. And and even when we're pheno hunting, like. We don't only look at yield and we will never only look at yield. And I know 80% of the companies out there that I talk to are only looking at yield because it's a dollars and cents thing for them. And like, that's just, we're in this to smoke the best hash. I mean, that's just what we do. So. Yeah. And I also want to comment on that 2021 um, flavor lineup that we did with the prioritization. I'm really excited about it. And I think it's going to be our most flavorful year to date. We were able to take some of our like, strains that we weren't as excited about that have been around three years that aren't like riveting and really delicious and replace them with some absolute bangers that still yield great. So I think it's going to be a really great year flavor wise for our company. Yeah. What's cool to hear is like you guys are coming from the smokers angle. Like you guys are looking for the Terps that, that you want to smoke. And, you know, I'll, I'll tie in a lot of what you said to, the concept of quality over everything, right? Like you're, you're willing to, to put out the two percenters in order to put out those Terps. And, you know, I'm curious what like the threshold of viability is, for example, Skelly for water hash. If it was like a one, two, 2% is probably the threshold of like this even makes sense in any way and we're still going to need to do some convincing and some evening out on the numbers for that round like one percent is at the point where it's just pretty much completely doesn't make any sense and i think even on the small operation sense like the people that will listen to this that are doing this in their basements they know that like they couldn't keep around a one like a one percenter, but maybe they could have a couple plants of a two percenter in that corner, you know, and they'd be cool with it or a two point five. And you know, it's uh, we have a third partner that is more you know has helped us finance the business, and and um, we're super grateful that he gets it right. He gets it like okay, you guys need some two percenters to uh, make you make sure your customers are our, our customers are happy and. I get it. Whereas I don't, you know, we're going to lose money or even like when there's a batch that we want to throw out, we just lost 40 grand in product because it wasn't to our quality standards. Like he's, he gets it. He's like, all we have is our brand to protect. 
And that's what's going to shine through in the end. And numbers are just dollars and cents. And we know the money will come later. So we're super grateful to have someone patient and, and able to understand our vision, right? It's about quality over everything at the end of the day. And like we said from the beginning, quality over even making money at times, which sucks. But it's just we have to stay true to that so to be successful in, in, in our mind. Yeah. And oh, sorry, Skelly, to cut you off. But I was just going to ask Brad, like, you know, you, you bring up the third partner. I'm curious if you feel like, so you guys are coming from the smoker's angle and maybe he's not. Do you need that balance in the relationship to have a successful vertically integrated hash company? In my opinion, a hundred percent. And I heard, you know, I was on clubhouse last night and they were talking about this exact It was in a, it's actually a wild story that we can tell on another time that happened in this room. <laughs> the room was, was, was titled like, public investing in can- or investing in public companies or something. And one of the comments was like, one of the guys moderating felt that in order to be truly successful in this space, you have to have a balance of both worlds. You have to have that cannabis heart and soul and love to the culture. And you need someone that understands the whole business side, the capital market side, the structuring of deal side, all that side of it as well. And I think that marriage is what's going to be successful. And I don't see many, Many of them that are working out right now, they will over time. Companies are starting to get it. So, Yeah, um, I completely agree. And it's a big, one of the biggest keys to our success. Like people, you know, we're a product for first company, but we wouldn't be out there and getting to all the hands that we are if it wasn't for this very strong relationship with an individual that like does truly understand us and treat us with patience. And really like, even if cannabis isn't necessarily his thing, he, he does have like a far a far sight and an understanding of what our cult and what our consumer really need from us and what we need to do for them. And he allows us to create. So for sure. Yeah. That's cool to have, you know, be able to blend those visions and, and make it work for sure. Skelly, I've seen grams of hash or flour per square foot be called the true metric. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means? Well, Brad seems pretty excited on this one, so I'm going to let him. <laughs> I, you know, we'll get into it. We'll, we'll both get into it. I mean, if you want to hit it, go ahead. I don't no, know. I don't. So it's funny, like, to take a step back a step, it went back a second. When we were talking about our prioritization of genetics for the year 2021, we look at that exact metric. We look at hash grams per square foot of hash and resin, resin farming, right? So we didn't always look at it like that. When I got in this space, it was pounds per light. Still, some companies look at pounds per light to this day. It all depends on what you're growing for. And we grow for flour. So the flour rooms are looked at on our grams of flour per square foot. And this is how, you know, people sold seeds in Amsterdam and Europe and Spain for years and years on a grams per meter metric right so we went away from it us dumb americans per se pounds per light pounds per light pounds per light ingrained in our heads for the last 20 years so the true metric these days and and it goes to the square footage of a space you need to maximize your square footage of of real estate as well so there's so many elements to this right every day that we don't have a room that's on 12 and 12 because the way we grow is we grow a cycle clean it out like we don't have perpetual rooms where there's always plants in the room. We don't feel that's the best way to grow. We believe you need to clean these and sterilize these rooms the best of your ability. So with that, like those down days are crucial and we've calculated it. It's like 
every day that that room is not in 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness with flowering plants in it, we're losing $100 per light. A 60 light room, you're losing $6,000 a day that there's not plants in there. So there's so many metrics that are valuable and grams per square foot is definitely one of the key, key ones. Uh, agreed completely. And it was like an internal point of debate between all of us for a little bit there where we were talking about in terms of pounds per light and then kind of correlating it with the hash yields with the 1%, the 5% and all this. And then shout out Graffy at LaserCat Cannabis. He kind of um, gotten all both of our heads to start thinking about it a different way and to start looking deeper into the metrics of maybe at the end of the day, if that's a 5% or that's the biggest number for you, if you're processing for someone else and you're getting these pounds and you're giving them back a number and you're getting a cut off the top or something like that. But if it's a true single source and you're growing it from the start, it's not necessarily the end all be all, The the really the number is going to be very different when you take into like account the amount of biomass that these plants produce so yeah we've really started analyzing the last year or so and definitely shout out to our good friend graffy at laser cat because he, he again like skelly said he got us to start thinking this way but you know it's about the bio the biomass is important right like you have a strain that produces lots of biomass but it's a three percenter and you got to compare that strain to a, a, a uh, something that produces less biomass that's a five percenter and so on so you know, this is stuff that people just don't haven't grasped yet. And, you know, part of me, part of us don't even, doesn't even want to talk about this, but part of us is we're here and, and totally transparent with you. Yeah. And I appreciate that, man. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the, the changing aspects in cannabis now is that it is seen as resin farming. You know, it's not, you're not growing just a plant. You're growing the resin on the plant. And so looking at it that way is interesting. And that's, you know, why I wanted to impart, talk to you guys about it. So let's talk about some of the things that affect, you know, that, or let's call them variables. You mentioned growing and cleaning out the rooms. And I know that you guys do both hydro and living soil. And I'm curious how that works with the living soil setups. Like how do you sanitize do you, do you set up a new living soil bed every time or how does that work? Yeah. Um, so our goal right now, our, or when we relaunched 710 in 2016 with this new partnership, we decided to do about 20 to 25% of our garden as living soil to see how it goes for the first few years. And it went really well And in terms of yield, in terms of resin, in terms of flavors. And we want to expand that over time. And, uh, you know, sorry. Um, the downtime about cleaning a living resin. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Deb just got me. You're all good, bro. So the living soil room does not require us to clean anything. We live the, leave the soil living. It's uh, We make sure all the, 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 the biome is, is alive, and, uh, and it's a lot quicker of a turnaround time. It's not quicker of a turnaround time, but... It's, uh, it's more sustainable, right? We're not throwing a bunch of rock wool out or cocoa and just, it, it's, it's, it's great for us in terms of sustainability. The only thing we're paying for in those rooms is power, but we offset that with wind, wind energy as well. So we try and make ourselves as, you know, leave as little of a carbon footprint as possible in those rooms. Uh, but we want to expand that program. There's, it's just a matter of dialing it in. I think we're on around like 22 in Denver in one room, in our two rooms. And, 
uh, in Oakland. We have two rooms as well, and I think we're on roof. Well, we just Oakland. It's been the first time we revamped it when we brought a new director of cultivation in. He wanted to create his own soil, and honestly, you know, the last two batches of living soil out of Oakland are probably the best we've ever seen. Not to say that Denver's isn't amazing because it is, but just something that he did with these new rounds is is special. Agreed. Extremely flavorful. The numbers and the yield are actually very great as far as just that straight up perspective you were talking about, like a four or five percent. Um, so yeah, no, I can't say enough good things about the living soil project that's going on in um, the Oakland facility currently. Well, do you guys have a? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Shout out who? Shout out Richie. And I'm curious now that you've been growing the living soil for a few years and and you have some rounds under your belts. Do you guys have a personal preference? Can like, can you taste the difference? I'm trying to find a frog in there one day. I'm trying to walk in and just see a little green frog sitting on a leaf. And I'm just like, Oh no way. That's how deep you need to get this bio. But, um, <laughs> but I definitely didn't answer that question correctly at all. What was the exact <laughs> question? Um, just if you could, uh, do you taste the difference between the living soil and the hydro? And do you guys have a personal preference? Most recently, with those two rounds, I'd say that you can taste it. And I do have a preference towards it. It was absolutely great. I'd say it's batch to batch. You know, some rounds, I think the hydro produces a, a, a turkey. There's just so many variables, right? But um, I still think we're learning a lot, too. We don't have it all figured out. We're learning what are we looking for in the living soil if it crushes it versus... You know, but yes, there are more oils in the plant. We are seeing scientifically more oils in the plant, more of an oilier resin with the living soil. So there's that. But in terms of flavor, blind taste testing, I think it's batch to batch still. Yeah, and that's something that I find cool and you guys are very transparent about is just the fact that batch to batch, cultivar to cultivar, like every single time it's going to be different. No fucking doubt about it. A hundred percent. It's just something we found from ourselves being such geeks and the more we progressed with it. And because we were having that internal conversation with, with each other, how it's so batch to batch, we wanted to be transparent with that too and just let everyone know that really is the way that we see it and we really think that's the way it is. I look at it like wine a little bit. That's why... You're talking about some producers. It's, it's a vintage thing, right? Every year is different, the environment. Now, look, ours is indoor farming, but there's still environmental variables that change. We could have an AC unit that goes out for three days that could affect things. We could have, there's just still variables that it's not like perfect, like clean room, medical, it's not like that. Like, it's, or at least our facility is uh, like that. And, um, you know, where was I going with that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely batch to batch. I mean, oh, sorry, wine. But, you know, every, you know, there's some vintages that crush it in terms of moisture. So it's it's very similar in my mind to like the wine world and other agricultural too. Some fucking apples one year and watermelons one year, much sweeter and juicier than the, the next year. So it's like agriculture in general, obviously. By the way, Brad, whatever you hit, I got to try because uh, it's got you a little stumbled. Uh. <laughs> But uh, so, you know, back to the variables. Right. And I'll, and I'll start, start with solvent list because that's what I know more about theoretically. Right. So obviously the terpenes play into it. The trichome structure plays into it. 
the cell wall structure plays into it. The genetics play into it. Are hydrocarbons the same? Because I was like super surprised to find out or read somewhere, I think on one of your pages, that some of the stuff you won't even put out in BHO, it only comes out in flour because it's not even producing in BHO. Yeah, I mean, I think papaya for us is a good, good, good example because we love the papaya solventless products and the BHO just dries out and it doesn't come out as flavorful and or yield as well. So there are strains that like we just feel that like, yeah, and there's strains that we'd rather just see in flower and not even in either form. So um, I don't know if that answered the question exactly. No, I'd, I'd say that um, I'd say that that answers it pretty well. Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of tying in that to something you said earlier, Brad, which was, you know, you, you pick the strings based kind of on the terps. And so I'm curious when you're looking, when you're hunting for something unique and you find it, how are you determining what the plant is telling you in regards to extraction? And does that ever change? Like, meaning if you extract something in BHO because it wasn't producing solventless, and now you have another batch of it. Will you try running solvent lists and seeing if it works again? Or is it pretty much locked in? Generally, it's locked in. Generally, on the pheno hunt, we're going to get in there, get our hands on the resin, get like do some tests and pull some glands off of some plants and see how they hold up under different conditions. And um, we'll, we'll pretty much know. Although... We, we will keep an eye out if something odd happens, like a shift of some sort, or maybe taking a plant for a longer amount of time and then seeing, oh, at this point, the resin glands were this kind of resin. And then over the weeks and four more weeks later, they had taken on a stronger cell wall and they'd hold up to solventless extraction processes. So yeah, there are some variables there. Okay, cool. Well, let's change the pace a little bit. Brad, let's talk about the revelation that you had in Encino, California. I think at the kindest bud dispensary, I heard you say. Was that what, 2012? Uh, 2008. It's called Kind, uh, kind Meds, KM. It's on Encino Boulevard, or on Ventura Boulevard in Encino. A buddy of mine. So we had a grow facility right behind there. Uh, that was my first cultivation with a partner named Joe Andre, who's now over at Field or uh, Glasshouse or one of those companies. Good guy. I love him to death. He was my grower at the time at this property, eight-bedroom house right behind that dispensary uh, in Encino. We did all LEDs back in 2008, like idiots, because we didn't know what we were doing. Like, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're sustainable. And we're going to be the green. It's called the greenest green. That was going to be our dispensary. And, we're going to be a flushless toilets and fucking led lights. And we want to care about the environment, which we do. And we st I still do to this day, but long story short, the technology on the leds weren't where they are today back then. And sure. total failure. But anyways, right around the corner, one of the days we were working, my friend comes by, he's like, yo, I got to take you to this place. There's a dad bar. I was like, what do you mean dad bar? And he's like, you go in and there's like cocktail waitresses and, there's Laker games on, they're serving drinks and you pick like what type of earwax you want to smoke. And I was like, really? And so I went and that was the day of like, we didn't know we were not supposed to dab at like thousands of degrees. So <laughs> uh, 
a nice young lady that served me a dab of, I can't even remember what it was. It was definitely some sort of OG. I think it was a Skywalker, if I had to guess, but lit me up and, and uh, dabbed me out. And I was coughing for hours and I was so high. It was the first time that I, uh, I couldn't drive from cannabis. I did not feel comfortable. Well, in high school, there were some edible parties that we did with like people who definitely could not drive and we thought <laughs> like fucking dying because we thought we ate heroin or something. But um, but uh, but other than that, this was the first time from inhaling cannabis that I couldn't drive, and I just said, "This is the future of this is the future of cannabis right here." And this is that was kind of my revelation of creating the greenest green back in two, in two thousand nine when our first crop from the LED fails and me and Joe are like, what the fuck are we going to do? And it's like, Oh, we heard Colorado's open up for like a for-profit. We can just go open a dispensary and grow there for no problem right now. That's what we ended up doing after that LED failure. So. Yeah. And I've heard, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I keep cutting. The Rod, Rod, our boy Rod is the one that took us to that dad, took me to that dad bar that day. I'll never forget him and thank him for it. He's definitely part of this story. Throughout the evolution of this story, he's continued to be a part of it. So, yeah, that's cool, man. Uh, that's funny. I I thought it was really funny that, yeah, you got super high, but still you were like, this is this is the way, you know. And it turned into the greenest green, like you said. And you know, I read a little bit about you, which honestly, I'll I'll be super honest. It's refreshing to find a little information on people that I can actually like research, you know. But uh, yeah, you, you made the move to Boulder, right? At that point? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, went out, I think it was Memorial day, 2009, um, met with lawyers and they told me I could open a LLC for profit dispensary. If I just find the right zone real estate and the landlord's cool with it, the cities aren't even really giving licenses. You just get a regular business license. So it's not specific to cannabis sales. And I, the only time I've been in Colorado was visiting friends in Boulder in college. Thought it was a really cool hippie town and just good vibes. And I had a friend that was dating a girl from Boulder. So her family was really connected in the space with construction people and real estate people. And so we, I kind of used that as a tool and, um, and found a piece of real estate uh, right on Pearl street downtown and opened kind of that vision for the dad bar slash like, hookah lounge kind of vibe uh modernized a little bit and that was 2009 i think we opened uh september october i can't remember at this second but and then came the roller coaster of life over the last uh 11 12 years of ups and downs and wins and losses and uh arrests and uh being shut down and rebuilding the business and getting new partners and it's been awesome and I embrace every minute of it even though at the times that it seemed really hard that I wanted to give up I wanted to fucking quit because this business is super hard and it's stacked against us I kept going and I'm grateful where we are today and yeah happy to fill any gaps in there in terms of detail <laughs> cool yeah no and so you know so the greenest green you were the first dab bar in Colorado right which yeah, is unique because first. like that doesn't even exist anymore like now right no, yeah, it's uh, before they banned on on-site consumption. They banned in 2011, maybe end of 2010, and they're still working out the on-site consumption piece in Colorado. Um, but yeah, we were the first one, and, and we kind of brought concentrates, at least BHO concentrates, to Colorado at that time. I mean, I'm sure there was a bunch of underground stuff going on, but we were the first ones to kind of bring it to the people on the dispensary side. 
And it was cool. I mean, look, <laughs> the landlord didn't know what she was signing up for, to be totally transparent. Cut to a year later, and we're having Super Bowl parties with like huge, like leaf blowers smoking the place out and <laughs> going on. And there's a line out the door for people to line up for dabs before class. So there was definitely a buzz going around. But we also had the first clone bar, right? So we were selling clones out of there. People didn't even think of that in Colorado yet. They're like, what the fuck? Like LED blue lit clone bar until the, down the street, the farm dispensary in Boulder just knocked it, knocked us off and built one right after. And it was, it's cool just to see like, it's just cool to see the evolution of this business, to be honest. Yeah. You mentioned the Skywalker OG, I think in Encino and I've heard that was, or maybe still is your favorite strain. So I'm curious, like what other cultivars were around at the time? Yeah. So 2004, 2005, when I got out here after college, like, the OG hype train was just getting kind of off the ground from the early, late 90s, I'd say, when the Cypress Hill and, and that whole crew brought it. But, you know, I was an OG fiend. I was a fiend. I would only smoke OG. Would I dabble with some Bubba once in a while? Yeah, I liked Bubba. And then there was some Godfather OG that I really liked, which was like an OG cross with a purple. And it kind of evolved in that, that, that OG was like my life until from 2004, 2005 to uh call it 2010 when my dispensary was popping off in boulder and all these growers from all around colorado and probably other states but mostly colorado were coming in and, and tur- turkey bagging it up showing me vacuum sealed turkey bags of all different flavors and I was like, damn i hadn't seen durban poison since like 2002 in ohio like there's all these cool flavors coming around like great white shark durban Beasel that was coming around the northern lights like I was like, oh, shit, there's more to cannabis than OG. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, we, we definitely were known for our OG at the green screen, but we also loved buying other flavors. And that's what got me to, like, there's more to this. And now I'd say it took till about 2015, 16 to switch my favorite cultivar from, like, an OG. And I, to me, my favorite since for the last five or six years has been the Skittles. Skittles fan, it's just like that flavor profile. I can always smoke it. I can always just be dabbing it, smoking the flower. It's just, it's my, it's my number one. Now there's a lot of like 1.A's, 1.B, 1.C's in terms of right close to it, but Skittles has got, you know, the last five years or so, and I'm waiting for that, you know, and look, there's a bunch of cookies around and there's been, we've seen it all, right? Blue Dreams and it's just, it's, it's been a, and even in Amsterdam, you know, I went to Amsterdam in 99 or 2000 my first time and I'll never forget my first favorite strain back then was this yellow cab I got from the gray area. It was covered in resin. It just looked like yellow, just it was stickiness. It was just so yellow in the best way, not like yellowed out fucking weed please, but like green with like a yellow hint of resin. And anyways, just going back. And yeah, yeah, that's cool. It's funny because I, I actually remember the gray area and it was a super cool spot with super cool weed. He had like the, the shark, it was something shark. And he was like the, one of the very few American uh, owners in Amsterdam of the coffee shop. So, so that's cool to bring, you know, bring that up. And uh, you brought up the Beasel, which again, also has kind of like some history, I think with the Amsterdam uh, genetics in there somewhere uh, that you guys still run, right? We do. We do. This guy, Chris in Colorado kind of blew that, found the Finos and we have the Beasel one. There's the three and the five too, and there might be another one, but the one we have is um, the great white shark male. 
times the silver haze times a diesel too. I don't know what that diesel is to be honest, because I don't taste like a huge amount of diesel in it, but I taste a lot of the silver haze, the great white shark. It's sometimes I get caramel apples and other times I get like onions and garlic. And yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you brought up the BHO, uh, you know, being kind of one of the, the main spots for that in Colorado. At what point did the water hash kind of start pushing onto the scene a little more? Yeah, I'll let Skelly chime in on this, but my first, like, the glass scene brought it to me. Like, well, I'll give Nick and T his credit and Matt Rise because they were kind of the first ones making what we would call full melt bubble hash, water hash. Nick and T and I worked well together. Like, I just, he had good energy and he would always be like, yo, just give me some of your harvest at the greenest green for a little bit of water hash, fresh freeze it. And I was like, all right. Or even dry sometimes, I think we did back then too. And, uh, and it was cool. Like people loved it, but it wasn't my thing until I met Skelly and Skelly, you know, was working solventless extraction that he'll tell you about in a second back East. But the glass scene, I, I collect glass and that scene kind of pivoted me too. They kept pushing it and pushing it. All these glass shows going to Quave shows and they're like, it kept getting better and better. I was like, Oh, you can dab this shit and it'll melt and taste good. So that's kind of leads up to the whole partnership with Skelly. Um, yeah, sure. I'll get into that. So I was back East um, and I'd always just had like a do it yourself kind of thing with weed where I loved like very early on, I want to say seven or eight years ago, I was doing some like flower rosin stuff and just following along on IG as well as the forums, what was going on. And um, I'd go up, so I'm in, I'm in New Jersey, New York area, working in the city, commuting out, living in New Jersey. Okay. And I would go up north, and I had some friends in Massachusetts, like Mass Cannabis and uh, that whole crew over there. And then I had some friends up in Rhode Island, Chronic Coop, as well as um, Ken Wu-Tang, rest in peace. He was like the first person that ever really gave me like, the breakdown of how to wash hash and how doable and easy it was and how you could really do it with, you, you didn't need a um, hundred pounds of weed to do this. You could just get a buddy to freeze up just a couple freezer bags of it and you can make this happen on your own. So yeah, he kind of broke down that wall. So I was talking to a lot of my connections that were up, up North for me and like over, over there they had like a bunch of interesting, great solventless strains like uh, Menanuskin Thunderfuck, Alaskan Thunderfuck, as well as like old school strawberry. And then like the chems were very present. Right. Wash great as well. So I was getting these like very small runs, making them happen, uh, as well as doing a lot of dry sift at the time because dry sift was like so easy to do from trim and like help some growers out with their stuff up there. Shout out Chronic Coop. He's the person that taught me how to dry sift with a nice batch of Metanuskin Thunderfuck out of his grow at the time. And um, he really taught me how to isolate those heads like I'm eight years back. Um, and so I was just doing this, making my own, making rosin, very, very small batch. Like when, when I'm saying like, 20 grams was like a lot for me at the time, not even a baller jar. Like, Oh man, I made 20 or 40 grams. This is wild. So doing that kind of stuff. And 
I was also like very heavily connected with the Massachusetts crew and they were going on like a rampage on the cannabis cup scene at the time, like just win, 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 win. And I was kind of help. I was like lucky to even be like on the side of that, like helping like as like a little helper extractor, like not, not the extractor at all, but like sometimes like doing little things like that. And they came me up on like very high quality, small batch refining this hundred grams to be the best of the best. We're competing with Cuban. We're competing with a lot, a lot of great people. And that helped me like see, see this high level these guys were competing at and just the kind of stuff that they were up to. And, um, and then, yeah, Brad, Brad called me because we were friends through glass as well as a mutual friend. And he just told me that he was going to be in New York and he wanted to see where water hash was at and what was up with all this rosin stuff he'd started to hear about and all that. So I just came out to his, uh, place he was staying at in New York and we smoked some water hash and I pressed some rosin out for him and Lauren right there, his wife. And then we, um, we smoked it and we loved it. We were all like, you know, he wanted to take the rest of it home right then. He was like, I'll give me all this right here, you know? And he was like, we're going to form the first solventless lab in California only and like all this stuff. And like things started bubbling immediately. And, um, and then, yeah, I, I came out to California in, I want to say four months from that about. Yeah. Yeah. It's right when we moved back to California from Colorado. My wife was pregnant with our first child. And, uh, our house burned down in the middle of the night in Boulder. And we were eight months pregnant. We are like, let's just get back to Cali. And then, long story short, Skelly came out. And uh, we wanted to figure out how to make the best solventless products from there on out. So we flew up to Seattle, kind of got met with a couple buddies up there that we had known through the glass scene. And they kind of weren't totally like, here's how you do it. But they gave us a few tips because we had an idea, obviously. Skelly had an idea from his experience. And, and kind of just Skelly has evolved that process on our for, for our company over the last six years or whatever it's been, maybe even longer. So that's kind of when we saw, we knew, we knew the shift was happening and we needed to get out of it. And that's kind of what the, the story, you know, behind uh, the, transition yeah, Ooh, shout out for breakfast yeah for breakfast and goat organics were the guys that were like pretty pretty open with stuff with me early on especially in push for breakfast he like never turned down a question and he's he's always really been a, a good dude i i got nothing but respect for that guy yeah yeah and you guys still run his white tahoe cookies yeah we do, we do. cool well, I feel like this could be a good time for a smoke break if you guys are cool with that. Yeah, sounds great. I'm down. <laughs> all right, cool. And although I do want to get in on this smoke break, first, I want to give a shout out to our homies and main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best rosin bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. I want to start by thanking them for believing in the platform, for supporting the vision with the same passion to educate and create awareness within the community. 
as I've acknowledged before, saying that they are the best rosin bags is a subjective statement. I agree. But again, let's break down what the factors are to make something the best. The highest quality product that is reliable. Rosin Evolution uses the highest quality nylon. And just as important, the accuracy of their mesh is proven by some of the top hash makers in the world, as well as the durability of their bags under pressure, pun intended. For me, another factor that makes something the best is to have it have a good value in relation to the quality of the product, which you've heard me say, I feel like their full mesh wash bags are the best kept secret in hash, incredibly reasonably well-priced. And for the bags that are made from the exact same material as their high-grade, accurate rosin bags are made from, you can expect the same great results. And last but not least, to be the best, your customer service has to be amazing, which is something that Rosin Evolution excels at. They are super responsive to all your rosin needs, whatever those may be. And even in these tricky times, they will always have all the gear you need and get it to you incredibly fast. That's what, to me, makes them the best rosin bags in the game. So if you're not using Rosin Evolution yet, next time you need to wash or squish, visit them at rosinevolution.com and take an additional 5% off their already affordable prices by using our savings code, the letters THI and the numbers 710. Now, let's go back to the greenest green a little bit. Was that kind of the beginning of 710? Yeah, we were making these concentrates and they were just being sold as green screen concentrates. And it got to a point where like we should create a brand other than that so we can go sell to other dispensaries too because we were selling out of everything. But then we built our first cultivation facility, like commercial cultivation, not basement houses. And once we had that, we're like, we can go sell to other dispensaries. So uh, we needed to create a brand. And that was 2011 or 12 we created that brand. It was still sold at Green Screen mostly. And we were selling seven gram slabs. We were selling sugars. We were selling all sorts of stuff and all sorts of flavors. Back then it was the lemon G13 was the big hot, the hot flavor that we won some cannabis cups with. Cold Creek Kush was another one that was really well known. Skywalker 600, which is a, a, a great strain that, that I should have touched on before with the OGs. It was, there's this group of growers in the valley I was growing this cut of Skywalker that just looked insane. We called it the Sky 600 because it was 600 an ounce all the way up. All the way, I think that's what, 9,600 a pound or, or whatever. And we couldn't, <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot. And we couldn't, we couldn't get any cheaper. And it was just shiny, glistening OG that these guys, it was like a foxtail look. They like stressed the plant out that it put on so much resin. It was like glistening um, OG flavored turf. So, but anyways, yeah, that, that's uh, the start of 710 Labs was through the greenest green uh, kind of birthed it. And do OGs grow better OGs? <laughs> you know, that saying, uh, in my opinion, is true. I mean, the longer you've been doing this, the more experience you have and, and the better, you know, the better your, your OG in quotes is going to be. You know, I just think... Uh, it's hard to replicate experience in this world with science. You know, you, you can get a PhD in chemical engineering or a, any of those, you know, specific focuses, but until you do it and what scale, one of the things Skelly's taught me since working with him is the proof is in the fucking pudding. That's it. Smoke the shit. And that, that determines if it's good or not, not, not anything else. So. Yeah. And I'd say like, you know, OGs will grow better OGs as long as, you're like learning from your mistakes and learning from your losses all along the way. And um, it, 
if you're if you're not hard headed and you are letting the experience you're going through really teach you and mold you as well as you know just if you if you learn from the failures that are going to come with a really really long time and just a relentless pursuit in this industry you you're going to be you're going to be very strong as a competitor to, to anyone out there yeah so the og status essentially comes from experience right it's not something you can gain with age it's something that you have to acquire through direct experience hundred percent. You could be a hard, I feel like you could be a hard headed OG though and not learn a thing and really <laughs> kind of useless, you know, that's why I kind of say like, you know, like, I guess a humble that's OG true. that, that does learn from their mistakes and their losses. And that's how you really, um, that's how you, that's how you really do it. Right now. It's funny. Cause I've heard you talk about this, Brad, and I think I also saw it on your, on your page. And I love this documentary hero dreams of sushi and applying some of these philosophies to your brand and going back to Skelly talking about, you know, honing his craft back East. And, you know, like you said, you weren't even like at the top of the totem pole, you were kind of like the helper of the extraction and, and you kind of learned through these small batch of lessons and, and just over time, again, going back to the idea of OGs. So Talk to me about how perfecting your craft plays a role at 710 Labs. I just want to preface this, that credit for Hero James of Sushi is all skelly. That's his whole philosophy on how to make abs. He'll do a lot of things in his life, so I'll, I'll let him answer this one. Um, it, it's just, it is something that, like, I do think that it's important to have, I guess, heroes in a way, and people that you look up to, and people that you um, strive to take pieces from them, and put it into your work as well. And just his, his precision attention to detail and mastery were like very inspiring to me. I also love his own philosophy within his own practice of he only implements something to the sushi or to his practice. If it would increase the flavor, if it would make it more flavorful, if it's something flary or something of those kind of natures or something that he's hearing is the new hot thing that is not necessarily increasing the flavor or making it more flavorful. It's something that he'll disregard. And, um, you know, he says that in the documentary and I, I, I love that. I, I think that it's, it's very wise. And, um, and, and yeah, it's just, it's something that we strive for in the way that we do in the way that we do everything, whether it's the branding of this company and, and the way that we present ourselves in that way, or if it's just being product first and trying to put the, the best techniques out there possible to clean this resin the best way that it can to harvest it the most gentle and best ways that we can and to take that all the way through and to really embrace that single source nature of how beautiful it is that we get to control all of this and that we really try to bring that plant from seed into our cultivation schedule to express its resin to its fullest genetic potential, then to harvest that, to take it to extraction, and then just to bring it to a user in a gram that hasn't been greased down or buttered at all and is just like exactly a representation of what we do. It's... um 
it's something that we both take a lot of pride in. And it's something that we both rack our brains about all of the day to this day. It's not something that we've perfected. It's something that we get better at all the time. And yeah, it's, it's a big, big part of my life. And you know, in a practical sense, Skelly, I've heard you say, for example, maybe not you, but the, the brand that, for example, somebody you hire to, let's say, load rods and bags, like that's their one task that they perfect. And that's the, the, the one thing that they do. And they do that for X amount of time before they're able to move on. It, it is a big part of our philosophy, like specialization and mastery with, with specialization and repetition and making sure that they're learning as they're repeating and trying to get better and better each time that they execute even a small menial task, then we know that's someone that we can that can grow with us and can do great things with us down the line too. So it's um it's important to us just to see their their devotion and you know if you if you truly truly care about this brand and you truly truly love rosin, you're you're going to be happy loading those bags and doing it to the best of your extent and just knowing that you're playing a pivotal part in the whole process. And we, we hope for that. And, you know, having been with 710 now for a while and, and establishing this relationship, what is your role now at 710 Labs, Skelly? So um, it's, it's grown over time where I, I guess I'm, I'm one of the partners, one of the owners, which is an honor to me. Uh, I'm head of innovation and just making sure that we're putting new processes in place and making sure that we're working on some stuff that's cutting edge, as well as the genetic implementation, the genetics that we're popping and um, helping with the pheno hunting. I, I'm also co-creative with our CMO, our chief marketing officer, Molly, who's an all-star too. And we really try to give a vision and just bring the vision to life that me and Brad share. And so, so yeah. And also, I guess, just like the, the day-to-day with the extraction departments as well as some of the things in the grow departments, just making sure that things are functioning. But Brad does that as well. And we have a... <laughs> Uh, COO that does great as well and does that as well. I was just going to add on to Skelly. You know, I don't think people understand or I don't think people <laughs> even know how influential Skelly, influential Skelly is on the creative side of the, of the marketing side of this business. He, his eye for aesthetics and design and artwork is uh, second to none. Uh, as Along with Molly, our CMO, they work really well together. So people don't realize that he's involved in that side of the business too heavily. So. Yeah, I'm glad to, you know, shine a little light on that because you definitely seem like you have a very important role and and a lot of influence on, on the on the brand. So, you know, again, relating it back to the documentary and this mindset, Skelly, let's talk about the tier system and the trust the chef mentality. Well, as Brad got into it before, it became like an internal debate of almost how can we offer these strains that are like the shirt pops that are yielding in the tubes. And it was something that we initially came up with just to kind of make it so that we could get some, yeah, it's better. Just so that we could get some things going on that side and like not get down pitfalls with the numbers that we were looking at. We could increase like 
charge a little bit more and still run things that were 2%. So that's where it came in initially. We, we do do a lot of any, anyone who has even a small brand out there that is combining flavors and they're working with what they have, they're doing a lot of curation. So they're hoping that the way that they do that is going to be trusted very well. So we, we have a lot, we have a lot of flavors under our belt. We don't do that much combining, but we just hope that people, people are enjoying what we're bringing and the Fino hunts we're doing and the new flavors we're pursuing and the way that we're presenting them to them. And, um, yeah, I guess Brad could touch on the, on the trust your chef mentality too. Yeah. I'm, I'm like a huge sushi fan. Omakase. Like I don't like to order when I go get sushi. I want the chef to just bring me stuff. And, um, that's what we've tried to develop with our customers is just trust us. Trust that like, if it's a, batch of delicious that doesn't hit that gassy creamy flavor that we know it does like we're going to offer it at a tier three or tier four so you can afford our product get the same level of, of high but it might not be the, the best flavor of that strain whereas like you know um if it's uh for example this sunday driver like spectacular great gassy flavor in your mouth doesn't yield that well biomass wise uh does okay hash wise but it's 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 a rare strain that comes out really great most of the time that we want we, we know is a two tier two or tier one product. So it, it really allows us to have a versatile library of genetics because a lot of a lot of companies are, are constrained by that, right? We need it to be a four or five percenter. We uh or or else it doesn't make economic sense. So the tier system allowed us to convince our partner, yo, we're gonna do it like this so we can still grow these and still please our customers while still hopefully being profitable. Yeah, I think it's cool, man. And I think it's necessary, you know, uh, again, going back to what we talked about a while back about standardizing terms, I think that could be nice. You know, I know everybody kind of has, you mentioned LaserCat. I think they have their own kind of tier system and you guys have your tier system. And, you know, I know everybody tries to keep it pretty transparent, but, you know, I built a little kind of list of things that I feel like the tier system does. And if you guys would grace me with a little yes and no, or in between, uh, I'd appreciate that, you know? And one of the things is, do you feel like the tier system creates more transparency? I think that's the whole point of it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And like we were talking about how it's batch to batch. It also lets us embrace that truth where, where, you know, if, if there is something that it's completely a healthy plant, there, there were no real issues, but for some reason, there was a nutrient deficiency or something along those lines where it didn't express its genetic to its fullest potential. It's, it, you know, we're not going to not release that because there wasn't an issue with it, but we'd be misleading to just be like, hey, it's our classic Skittles. Get after this and enjoy it. We want, a, we want a way to communicate that to our consumer hey, this, is, this isn't the best batch that you can get from us of this specific strain. So if they have that question in their mind, wait, why is this one a tier three? But um, yeah, so it gets, let's just get to a better level of transparency as well as embrace that. Yeah, and I won't ask this because I think Brad answered it and saying that you basically, it allows you the tier system to grow cultivars that wouldn't be feasible if the tier system didn't exist. But it also seems to allow you to produce more 
products. You're offer, you're able to offer a bunch of different options, you know? And so I'm curious if that plays into kind of the economic part of it as well. Like, you know, maybe a lower tier isn't as flavorful or as desired or as a, as a, as big of a yielder, or I guess that's the other way around, uh, is a big yielder. But at the same time, it provides somebody who wants to smoke water hash a more affordable option or a rosin. Yeah, yeah. And, and that came from our sales team out here in California a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, two years ago, when they were hitting the streets. You know, they were like, we need something that competes with like a raw garden. It's like, guys, like we don't produce that quality. It's a different market. But we're going to do our best to try and hit that customer that's an entry level customer that wants to try some solventless or some BHO that um, is a little more affordable. So that's why we brought in, you know, we were going to do tier th- three, three tiers at first. We brought that fourth one in to kind of help with that, that price point of the uh, someone that still wants a great product and we still stand by our tier four product. If Skelly and I would smoke it if that was all that was here. Like, you know, it's not, it's, it's fine. Still an indoor and small scale relative to raw gardens garden um, as far as the production on it as well. Yeah. So, and we've always been, we've, we've, Trust us, we've talked about creating products to directly compete with them, and, and we're still going through that iteration internally. But we think that we have developed the skill sets now to execute this on mass agricultural scale and uh, keep an eye out for that in the few, next few years. And even if we do do that, it won't uh, interfere with what we're building here as a brand, as 710. That's, that's all about quality, that's all about single source. and that's all about indoor. So that, yep. that means never going to shift. And that's going to be a, a quality mark that we're going to hold ourselves to. And that's, that, that's our, that's the dream. But I do think that it's going to be something we'll be able to produce at some point, a product that could compete with these other guys doing it on more of a mass scale. But, you know, that's, a, that's a, something in the beginning talks and it might end up not quite being a 710 product. It could be, but, um, Either way, we're going to remain true to our quality over everything ethos. And I'm curious, like, who comprises the team of people who who are, in this instance, the chefs? In terms of making the hash? No, in terms of rating the hash or choosing what goes in what tier. Yeah, good question. So for a few years, it was Skelly and I, pretty much primarily, which was really difficult across two states. But we found a couple people in each state, mainly the lab directors of each, that that was kind of part of the criteria of hiring them. So we have an awesome dude named Jeff in, uh, in Oakland, and we got a great guy named Quincy, and Danny also helps with tiering in, in, uh, in Denver. And they've kind of learned our palates and what they're looking for. And they know, like, the genetic, too. Like, there's never going to be, like, a tier one bootylicious. Just doesn't exist in our world. Tier two, for sure. Um, but, you know, there's certain strains that they're never going to be. They, they can't rate something tier one unless we told them this strain is only a tier one strain, essentially. So there's, there's a criteria that we go through. We blind tasted them. We, we compared it against Skelly's notes. We, we've done a lot of R&D on this. It didn't happen overnight, but we had to get comfortable with our people that we're, we were confident enough with to tier these in each state. Which leads me to ask about the list. You know, I think it's a cool concept 
and I'd like you to talk to us about it. Yeah, I'm happy to. So after I sold my dispensaries in 2014, I was super focused on the wholesale side of the business. That's kind of been our what we do, right? And as we got to know stores better and better over the last seven years, six years before we launched the list, it's, it's really difficult to, first off, there's a lot of turnover in these dispensaries. And to understand our niche product like ours is very hard to educate on how to store the product, how to talk about the product to a customer. The customers, a lot of the time, that buy our products are smarter or know more knowledge about this product than the bud tender themselves. So that's what inspired us to start this direct-to-consumer list program. And we wanted to keep it super exclusive and small to start. So make sure, it's like anything, right? Like Skelly was talking about, we want to master it on a small scale first always before opening it up. So we're like, let's do it super exclusive. You got to write us a little love letter or create a video or something to get on the list. And you have to be in one of the zip codes, obviously, that we can deliver to to start. And it's really taken off. You know, I think we have like close to 5,000 people on our wait list and another, you know, we let a few hundred on at a time and some of them order, some of them don't. And, uh, you know, it's a $300 minimum to make sure it's worth our while to put this together and make sure the product comes perfectly cold, perfectly like how it should come. Like that's the biggest part of it too. Like these stores weren't storing it properly and they get so many complaints from our customer service about caked up grams. Or, rot, or buttered up rosin. And that's not that's not how we want people to get... You're paying top dollar for our product. It's got to come pristine. How it came out of the wash, how it came out, out of the wash or out of the squish or, or whatever it is. Um, and so it's 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 gone really well. And, and we're expanding it this year. It's about 35% of our business right now in California. Hopefully to launch that in Colorado by mid-year because the rules are changing in certain jurisdictions there. I think Denver comes on in June, which is kind of the biggest zip code that we could enter in the Colorado market. So, And we're entering Michigan and Florida this year, too, and those are both direct-to-consumer markets where we can deliver right to the consumer. So not to say that we're not going to we're gonna abandon our dispensary because we're not. We just want to find the right dispensary partners that understand our product, that are willing to put the time, money, effort into keeping it the way that it needs to get to the consumer. And we'll work with those that really understand it over time. And the bartenders that are willing to be educated, that are, want to be there, like a sommelier, that really want to help the customer understand what they're smoking. So it's, a, it's, it's all of that. But that's where it kind of generated from. Scaling one. No, very well said. Yeah, no, that's cool. And, you know, I'm curious, like, where do you see that going? For example, instead of having like a 710 rep at the dispensary who knows everything about it, knows how to take care of it versus this, you know, direct to patient model. Do you see the future of the industry kind of being a combination of both those things? Yeah. I don't think that the liquor store is ever going to go out of business, but I do think that the connoisseur that we sell to wants to go direct to us if they can. Um, I think that's going to be both, both markets. I mean, what the, the, the presence that we have planned for the stores that really want to partner with us is going to be awesome. I don't know if you know about our Hashhead hotline, but there's going to be a phone in these stores that you can pick up at any time you walk into the dispensary that talks to someone at 710 Labs. So, it, you know, that's where we're going to get to. It's going to be a real cool experience shopping for 710 in a dispensary or getting it delivered to your house. We're going to evolve that. It's going to get better and better. You know, but you mentioned something. You made me start thinking about something. And yes, there could be a day where we're 
dealing with FedEx or UPS to get it there and not a driver. You know, it could evolve into something more that is kept on dry ice or it's kept cold somehow or, you know, it's, this thing's going to evolve. This whole fucking industry, dude, I tell everyone we're still in the first inning, barely. You know, it's going to be 50 years before the real fucking players are truly established. It took 100 years in the alcohol business. Now, now they were established the first five, 10 years, obviously, but to really develop what they are today, it took generations and decades. So, yeah. yeah, and going to your point, I mean, Canada already does it, right? Don't they ship out to their people? And, you know, so, so yeah, definitely, man. It's exciting to see where this industry is going to lead us to. And like you said, we, we likely won't be around here to see what it develops into like that, but it'll, it'll be cool. It will be hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is a great opportunity for a quick second smoke break. I want to take a moment to thank the people who show us so much love by being part of our community on Patreon. No matter their contribution, we're incredibly thankful to each person who allows us to keep producing content, including episode 26 with Brad and Skelly of 710 Labs. I also want to take an additional moment to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Eric in Washington, my dude Solventless Slater in PA, Jeff in California, Ryan, aka Pick and Slims in Michigan, Roots to Rosin and Captain Splinks in SoCal, Whitewater Hash in Oklahoma, Humphrey Hashish in Oregon, Spencer in Washington, The Baby Moon Man in Michigan, Jose in California, our homie Gendo420 now in Maine, David at Rosin Evolution, the homie International in Canada, the boys on the Big Island, Preston Show, Alec in LA, Big C in Wisconsin, Manchu Gardens in Denver, Totem Solventless in California, Mission Hill Melts in Massachusetts, Chansey in California, Chris in Grass Valley, LeBron Terps, Mystican Melts, Deals Grows, Mikey of MTS Farms, Haji aka Solventless Terps, Arlie from Lost Roots Hash in Oklahoma, James the Casual Cultivator, Mario in Illinois, the homie Dan in Connecticut, and the two dudes who split the Patreon Saint of the Year, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend now at the Garden of Greece, and Kevin of Lifted Indina. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So I wanted to ask about the Blueberry Haze. Who can tell me the story? It's, it's, um, it's one we keep a bit close to the chest, honestly. We haven't gotten too deep into it. Have you smoked it personally? No, it's but a, I'd love to because I love hazes and I love blueberry terps, which is part of the reason I'm asking. It's one of the, honestly, like one of the most bizarre situations I've experienced in cannabis uh, in the last couple of decades, like from on the, being on the growing side. It's just, I, I still don't understand what happened to this day, but <laughs> basic. <laughs> you, uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a mystery. I'll keep it at that. Yeah, that sounds good. Hey man, I'm, I always try to be respectful as, of as much as people can share about stuff, man. So, yeah. I'll say that, um, if you do smoke that, it's one of my favorite smokes from us and it is very, very true to that name. Um, I, I would get behind that, but it is very, very true to that. Man. And I'll, I'll tell you also, it's a huge biomass producer, but not a very good hash yielder. So it's like one of those that produces huge donkey dick fucking 
colas, but uh, the wash side doesn't do very well. But the flavors, blueberry terps and a, and a hash is always great. It so reminds is that like a standard tier one? Two, two, maybe one sometimes, yeah. We, we, haven't, we haven't run it in a while, and Denver doesn't even have it yet. Or maybe they're just getting it. Denver's never run it. Yeah. Um, we haven't run it in just a little bit, but we did put it into production for the 2021 lineup, so yeah. it will be around. And it's, uh, I love that strain. How do you compare? Do you think it tastes at all like the Casey? No, like we we love that strain, the Casey 36 from oh, Higher. Yeah. Oh Classic. yeah. Like when I came out to Cali, it was one of the first ones that I was like, I need to get that. I've been looking at this online for a minute. I, I love that strain. I'd say that that one's more like melony and like fruit, fruity, smooth, where this one's a bit more of that like offensive haze yeah. with true yeah. blueberry yeah. to it too. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just funny that it's like one of the, well, there's probably two strains in our lineup that are a bit of like a touchy subject for us to just have. <laughs> Should we have those strains, you know? And it's like, that's why it just comes up like that. Yeah, yeah, no worries. That's funny. I'm actually smoking on some uh, KZ from Higher Grounds, which is like a cross of that KC 36 with the Skittles, I think. And uh, yeah, there, there's some cool flavors coming out of that too. I heard about that cross. I haven't had it yet, but I'm definitely going to try that too. Um, Shout out higher ground, man. I love that. KC36. I'll always love it. Yeah, we're trying to get a cut of that if anybody knows where it's at. <laughs> Say top dollar. <laughs> you heard it here. Um, so let's talk about, you know, that leads me to talk about chemotypes and phenotypes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. You're all good, man. But a chemotype to me in a very, like, simplistic way of looking at it is almost like this pool of genetic potential to where the pheno is more like a physical manifestation of one of those genetic potentials. Are you talking about genotypes versus phenotypes? Ah, genotypes. Yeah, I don't know what I said. Sorry, maybe I dabbed too hard. Chemo, I was thinking, man, chemotherapy, what are we talking? But no, I'll agree. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you described it well. Like the, uh, the genotype is the genetic as a whole and the pheno is how it reacts in that surrounding, in that environment that, that it's in. Um, and we look at it also like brothers and sisters and, and kids and um, they're all a little similar, but there's always these slight differences, right? Yeah. It's like a simplified way that I, that's always helped me looking at genetics too, is just like, okay, just thinking about the mother and father and how I feel about them. And then their offspring, all the different expressions of the mother and father. And maybe I'm looking for these characteristics of the mother that I love, like the purple bud structure, but the smell of the father is, is really what I want on, on that side. So it's just like delving into all the little variants, variations between the phenos and like identifying that one that has those traits from both the parents that you're really looking for unless there's of course just something that comes out of left field that's absolutely like delightful right which is one of the cool things about genetics it's just like these endless possibilities of of these combinations in essence a hundred percent you can't be too controlled where you like shut yourself off from a great possibility that just kind of falls in your lap that's different 
Right. And, you know, you guys brought this up in a different context about growing uh, the blueberry haze in Cali, but the Colorado facility maybe still haven't got to run that. What can you tell me about regional preferences in regards to strains and what do you guys see being in both, you know, major markets? A lot of times Colorado is pretty like hungry for the new things that were that are being worked on out in Cali and the the new things that are going on there. So that that brings some advantage out there. And then um, market preference out here, I'd say that just California is it's just at the head of genetics and just like the competition going around about these different genetics and all that, whether it's on, you know, on, on both sides of things on, on our, on the conventional market, as well as the, as the legal market, it's just, there's so much high competition out here in California that there's, it's just, uh, there's so much like learning, learning to be had. And I'd say that cookies has really affected the preference out here as well as the classic OG leaning, but I'd say people are also open to something like a blueberry haze too, because there's so much repetition and you can, you can go to your dispensary and get five OGs, but maybe that like one Durban that's from your past that you, that you really wouldn't, you know, that you'd really love isn't even sitting there anymore and no one's running it, but it's delicious stuff. And to touch a little bit more on, I think, you know, the t- terroir conversation of this whole thing is like, we definitely see cultivars that do better in Denver than they do in Oakland and the opposite as well. Um, and it's, it's definitely part of the environment of that, that city and the elevation and, and the humidity of that city. And as much as you can control in an indoor grow, there's still these uh, unknown elements or known, but some unknowns as well that we we like to embrace right so it's like there's some strains that denver crushes that we just can't dial in we've tried for three years and it just won't it won't happen in oakland and so there's definitely an element to that too yeah that's interesting because you know you brought it up a couple times it's indoor but still it's like its own microclimate right Mm -hmm. even though it's still indoor and it's interesting to think of this additional factor being like the outside environment affecting that microclimate and how you're able to achieve some things in one place that you are in another. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's interesting. I've, uh, the, you know, I heard a story from um, one of the big investment groups here of a, they've developed a facility in Canada to replicate each climate across the world for outdoor cannabis farming. So they know how it grows in each outdoor climate at their facility in Canada. So then they can go grow massive outdoor across. Wild. The- yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty wild. That's cool. Like I said, it, it'll be cool to see what, what happens with all of this, you know, uh, Skelly, this is for you. Let's talk about pressing rosin. I like to go through, uh, you know, people's pages and stuff. And there was a post on your EDU page that got a little heated in the comments with the idea that, a smaller amount of hash being pressed at one time creates a better product. What can you say to that? So it's personal preference that, that I have. I've, I've done quite a bit of extensive pressing on 
many, many presses, like I don't want to, I don't want to name any and throw any under any under the bush. For sure. For sure. But, uh, some of them are like just a lot of the bigger ones. I feel like the rosin will be sitting there under a plate, even if you're making a huge, huge patty and, I'd much rather just have very small plate, very small amount of rosin, as little surface area exposure to heat as possible. And I really don't even, and you know, this is going a little bit into technicals, but I don't even like those exposed waterfalls where the parchment paper will be open and rosin will be pouring out just into open air oxidizing. I much prefer it just out out of the heat as quickly as possible and then just sandwiched between between paper and then and I won't take you through our whole process but just a cooling process and a conservation like getting it conserved as quickly as possible with no changes to its state whatsoever i think that every second every like millisecond matters on this on this matter so the quicker smaller press rather than large waiting for things to spew out and pour out over the sides and all that kind of stuff is um, it's, it's really your friend when you're, when you're fighting that battle at preserving Terps. And would you say that it's fair to say that rosin could be just as good if it weren't pressed in small batches based on your R and D? Um. I would I would say the best way to get that consistent. I I would just basically reiterate almost like what I just said about the quickest amount of time and get it right out of that agitation as well as that heat as quickly as possible. So the if there was a large large press, it's going to be spewing for longer amounts of time. So I'm talking about like reducing even the seconds that we're talking about there of exposure. So I, I probably just double down on, on what, what I said. So a couple of things you talked about the press. I've, I've seen you guys pressing. It looks like a, a small one. Like you said, it's like a two by two, maybe three by three at most. Yeah. Very, um, Shout out Greg at Jungle Voice too. I should say that because I know he runs under this philosophy as well. And um, as a Professor Sift, I thought this a lot when we were when we were working on our stuff. But um, I I would just say that uh, it, yeah, it's very small plates, like you just said about that size. Right, and then the other thing relating that to your point of getting the the hash oil away from the heat as quick as possible, even these milliseconds is going back to the point of like the idea of directional flow versus not. So from what I can tell, when you guys are pressing it, it's going to all four sides, similar to like you said, Greg of the jungle boys, but I think they do that with the dry sieve. So I would even say that when you go down the route of directional flow, like even just, in the title of that, you're, you're manipulating the flow of the rosin, which is the manipulation is technically agitation. So it is, it's exa- it is exactly what I'm talking about and almost wanting to avoid. Like this rosin 
moving around. And I've also, I think if you were to time them up with a directional flow, unless you're going at an extremely hot temperature, or you could do a side-by-side where it naturally expands out of every, every angle that it possibly can versus it's, you know, pointed in this direction that it, for the flow, you will, it will take longer for it to flow out of the directional flow as well as it's the manipulation of the rosin that, that, I, that I, do, I don't like that either. I just, I don't like it being agitated or manipulated. Right. And last question about this. Do you feel that there's an ideal ratio of the amount of hash you're pressing to the size of the plates that you're pressing? Yes. A hundred, a hundred percent. Like I was getting at in the first, first bit, like if, if we were to say, okay, this is the size that we can go on, on this plate, but let's triple, let's triple it up and put three bags on top of each other. Just that amount that just that time that it's going to sit there and squish through all three of these bags and everything's going to flow out together. Yeah. Our production would be tripled, but the quality would be like, you know, half or something. So there, there's a, there's definitely a ratio to your plates that you're working with. And, um, yeah, I would, I would, this is the most he's ever shared. So you should be super grateful. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, don't I am, I am. You we know. all we all are, you know, because that's that's really what it's about. It's just like, you know, getting this info out there and something that I wanted to talk about that I relate this to is this is a pipe. You know, it's it's a book project that you worked on, and we'll touch on that hopefully before we end. But it's that idea of of essentially harnessing this information or people's experience, this OG status that people are achieving by doing these things so much and sharing that for for future generations of people. I am with you. I'm with you 100%. Skelly wants to hold that shit tight to his chest. I want it out there. <laughs> I, I like to, well, of course, there's a lot of things that are going around in my head, theoretical, that I haven't gotten to execute on outside of like a personal R&D lab that I know that it works. So some of the things that we, we need to get into our own production and, and I'd like to see us get it out there and be one of the first on it and then maybe get more open about it and share with it and get every, and if we think it's an improvement, get everyone out there up on it and put it on the EDU page and try to get people educated on it. But there are some things that I definitely like to hold, hold close to chest. You know? We're yeah, good for sure. Good balance. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, since we're on rosin and it's kind of a big topic, Let's talk about the second press and let's talk about the rosin Percy sauce because the second press seems to be something that a lot of people want, but there's just not enough of. And you guys are trying to educate people as to what the second press is, the benefits. And, you know, I think obviously the other benefit is just like I talked about earlier, the price point, right? It seems like it's a sweet mix of quality and uh, affordability. And then the other thing is the, confusion that exists among consumers between the rosin percy sauce and bho extractions okay so first i'll tackle the rosin percy sauce that is there there was just the time um where i was tackling all sorts of different kinds of ways to make rosin sauce i stumbled on some methods myself in 2016 which i posted on my instagram and 
a lot of those were completely unsustainable for a production model. And I kind of came across cold curing as putting things in the oven and heating them up to make these batters. It's a, it's a different process completely from what I see out there. Otherwise, from the way that it's pressed at the beginning, the, the kind of bags that we use and the method we use to press it all the way to the point where we crystallize it. So it's just a, it's a crystallized rosin sauce separation where we'll get a turp layer that is the upper part and then a diamond layer, which is the bottom. And sometimes it will be a bit of a, uh, like a micro diamond. Sometimes it will be like, you need to look under a microscope to see all the little diamonds and some strains will create big facets as if you were making BHO diamonds. And, um, it's, it's like of our solventless products, it's the one that has the most shelf life. It will, it can, it can sit for quite a lot of time outside and maintain its stability. Yeah. Full, but full solve, full solventless product, just R and D that is a bit different than what I generally see out there with the rosin batters. And you had another question. What was the other, what was the other piece? Second press. Second press. Oh, second press. So second press is just, just as its name would imply, it is the second press. It um, will pre- we'll take our rosin bags and typically we'll get about, I want to say 85 to 90% of the material out the first time. Then we'll squeeze a second press out. And it's, it's typically slightly less terpy, which ends up leading to more stability. Because, you know, terp- terpenes are technically a hydrocarbon and whatnot, and they, like, lead to instability in, in the product a lot of times. They're, they're one of the pieces that will butter it up and cause the oxidation reaction. So, like, uh, there's technically less terp, so it's, a lot of times it's more like shatter, which people do enjoy and they do like. I've, I smoke it myself at times. It still, still tastes great, great product. And um, it's just another way that we were talking about hit a, a lower tier price point and maybe get someone that maybe they are used to smoking BHO, but then they see there's a solventless product that's in within their margins and they're like, let me give it a go. And then maybe they're the next thing, you know, they're like trying to grab a normal gram of live rosin down the line or something. And to talk about the scarcity of it, it's like you squish something, you squish the water hash the first time you get called 85%. Of, you squish it a second time and you, maybe you get, four to six percent out of it so that's why there's so little amounts of it you know it's and in california you have to have a decent sized batch to go to testing because testing is so expensive here and you have to give out so many grams to the testing lab so we got to stockpile these batches up before we release it to make it even worth the testing fees so that's the other part of it yeah that's interesting well, I know we got to wrap it up, guys. So, you know, there's a billion things I probably would like to talk to you, but let me let me hit the, the, the last points. You brought up single source earlier, Skelly. You guys take pride in that. But recently you've had to outsource. Talk to me about that. Brad hit that more so. Yeah, I mean, there's two parts of it. One, we, we were forced to do this because of we got looted in Oakland. During the George Floyd protest, we got hit by about 30 individuals. The cops couldn't get there because there were a bunch of shootings that night. And they were there for about six hours and ransacked our whole thing, uh, got through the security guards and everything. So 
we lost about $3 million in product. So in order to keep product on the shelves, we had to reach out to other farmers. And during that process, we found farmers that we really like to work with. And there are certain batches that they grow that we're willing to process. And, and it's maybe now that we're back on from the looting, um, it's probably less than 3% of the product we put out is maybe it's not at once we're building phase three in Oakland. And once we uh, finish phase three build out, which is probably around October, that'll help us meet our demand and we won't have to uh, outsource anymore. But again, it's maybe two to 3% of our production is, is outsourced flour. It's not, we were forced to do it because of the looting and, uh, and we continued to work with the farmers we really liked with over since then. So that's the kind of long and short. Yeah. So I'm curious, like the, the demand, you know, outside of the looting, as we talked about earlier, it'll keep growing. And how do you keep up with that? And how do you keep up with quality over everything in that scenario? Yeah. So that's why we're doing this so slow. I meant to touch on this earlier. Like you see a lot of brands, not a lot, but a few brands expanding rapidly across the country, right? Specifically, all who I think is doing it the best out of anybody. With that said, it's still not consistent in every state. And I think you're going to find that you can't find the same cookies. If you go from Colorado to California to Michigan, it's going to be a little bit different, right? We don't want to do that. We want it to be the same exact quality in every state. Is that a Washington Wizards shirt? It is. I'm uh, I'm a DMV guy, man. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, I am too, obviously. I I saw that. Yeah, I was born in Arlington, Virginia, raised there until I was 15, bro. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm from Bethesda, Maryland. But anyways, um, so that's why we're taking this super slow and, and entering states that we can't control the cultivation of because the cultivation is the root of everything we do, right? So it's it's if we can't control that, we really can't control quality. So um, you know, we are growing slowly. Phase three in California doubles our capacity to where we are right now. We designed it the same way with small grow rooms. We never go above like 60 lights per room. And most of our rooms are around 20 to 30 lights. So we can control each environment, each harvest, each strain. Um, and the next day we're going to is Michigan, where we are, again, controlling everything. We're controlling the real estate. We're controlling the cultivation, the distribution, the manufacturing. So now, I will tell you that Florida is our first state that we're working with a partner and that we feel really good about where we don't control everything because we don't have $40 million to go buy a license there. It just wasn't in our cards, but it's a market we really wanted to hit because we know the hash community is huge down there. They always fly out to Denver and California to buy our product. So we saw that we saw the opportunity and we're giving it a shot, but we still are going to be very involved. We're not handing over SOP and saying, go run with it. We're going to place people down there for years and years until it's got to a place where we feel really good about it. Um, so we're doing it slowly and we're not expanding as fast as we could because of the quality component. It's just like anything in the world. Like we don't want to lose the quality because that's what we really care about. And if we are going to, then we'll just, we'll just stop growing. Right. We're comfortable where we are um, in terms of just putting out good products. So a hundred percent couldn't have said it better. It's just like, we, we don't need to grow that 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 huge and compete with the Budweisers if that's not necessarily our identity where we're a more each small brand that is about quality first and maybe we can't hit those acres and acres and acres of farmland the brand that we're developing so it's it's yeah juggling those two things but also never losing your 
focus of what the ethos is and what it's all about for us. And, and, and that's why we do want to dabble in some outdoor here soon. Start with maybe 10 acres or so and see how we do. Take it slow because we know like once the floodgates open in terms of interstate commerce, we want to be able to supply good quality solventless products to people across the country. But we know that you can't scale our specific business because of the quality component of it. Right, right. It's always a little awkward for me to ask kind of hard questions, but I came across an article recently about the 710 gummies. I don't know if you guys have yet, but... Uh, it's 2.32. No, I'm just joking. But uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll close it with this. This whole time we've been, um, we've been getting texts. We're putting a post up in response to it. Just so you know, this guy, Hash Writer, I don't know if you follow him or not. He's the one that wrote this article. He was begging us for a job for the last year and a half every day, hitting up our DMs, pretty much like a psychopath, like pretty psychotic messages. And <laughs> I'm just telling you how it is. Like, it's true. It's true. I, I, I mean, we're not putting anything. So like, we're not mentioning this because we don't want to, but I'm just telling you because you're a homie, like the context around this. This guy thinks he created cold cure, all these things that he like comes at us about. Now, that's the context of the guy that wrote it. Now, in terms of his claims. The content. The content of the claims are absolutely false. The rosin we put in our gummies is live rosin, Percy rosin, and second press. So we mix it up. We put all three of those in the same batch. We, we take a ratio of, of all three of them. We put those in the rosin. We don't make the edibles in-house. We, that's not our core competency. We don't even know how to make gummies. I'm sure we could figure it out if we put our minds to it. But we found a partner we really liked in San Francisco named Elefante. They make these solventless gummies for us. Now, the test results, uh, test our rosin, and you test the gummies that come from the rosin, the test results are going to be about the same. The only variance is going to be due to the decarboxylation. That's the only variance. In terms of the ethanol, the ethanol is used in much, many, many food products from hamburger buns to bananas to, um, it's the oldest component that was used to make food back in hundreds and thousands of years ago when they, when they figured out how to make alcohol. So alcohol, there's a, like the edible is ethanol to disperse the rosin in our gummies. We don't use ethanol in our extraction process. In fact, we've never even made distillate. We've honestly never felt the need or reason to make distillate. Um, so where, where I will give a little bit of credit is they might say they're full spectrum on the back. They're the same broad spectrum as a rosin. Are they as full spectrum as RSO? No, they're not as full spectrum as RSO. So, but they're the same exact spectrum as our rosin. We put our rosin in them. So, Skelly, you want to add anything? No, I'd say that's that's pretty well said. The the claims are are technically untrue. They're they're not made with distillate. They're not cut with distillate. Distillate has nothing to do with any gummy that we've ever made or any of the products we've ever made, even our pens. So, um, yeah, that's just a claim. Um, Cool. I appreciate you guys being so forthcoming and open about it. And like I said, it's always a little awkward for me to ask, but I, you know, these are parts of being, I suppose, a, a cannabis company in, in a growing market. So I was curious, you know, the explanation, but also your, your take on it, you know, uh, favorite non 710 laps hash of 2020. Real, real quick, just to, to finish up on that other one. 
we embrace the criticism. We embrace the questioning because it gives us an opportunity to educate more, right? If people things, we need to tell them this, this is how it's made. We need to be more transparent. We think we're transparent, but anyways, more fun question, which you just asked. I'll let Skelly lead that <laughs> up. You oh, say, hard you say, question. Is it hash or flour? Or? I said, yeah, the favorite, favorite non 710 laps hash of year, of last year. Oh, got it. I'm, I'm always a fan of the Durban Sherbert. Mm. The Durban Sherbert is always, it's just, it's great and delicious. Um, also, my, my homie Hash Era knocked out a great batch of Elephant's Growth OG form, and he rarely gets a smoke, just a straight OG and salt from this form, and he really delivered it to... He, he knocked it out the park. Nice. nice. And Brad? <laughs> <laughs> um, man. <sighs> I saw you smoking on some of my homies' uh, Simply Adam stuff a while back. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. I love that, dude. It makes fucking great hash. Uh, that's probably, honestly, my only complaint was, like, the flavors, but the quality of that is insane. Like, if Skelly breaks me off a gram of Durban Sherbert, like that flavor, like is something we don't have in our repertoire. So I really love that. But the, the, the quality of the hash that simply Adam makes is absolutely insane. It's just the kind of the, the flavors that I got the flight of were, were a little generic, but I think on the quality side that that's probably the best hash. That's not ours that I smoked this year. For sure. That nice. Awesome. Yeah. Parties was great. Oh too. shit. I knew there was a bunch that I would forget. I'm too stoned. That was the that was actually that was number one for me. Uh, you said the Smarties by Wooksauce? Yeah, it was. I've never seen that in a full melt or rosin form before, like done that well. And it was. It was I mean, I smoked all of what I got, which was like a couple hours. I think it was so good. So, yeah, I think that took like second place uh, at the Ego Clash Barcelona or something. So I'm sure it's fire because there's a lot of stuff out there. Well, again, I am incredibly appreciative. I know we've gone over a little bit but uh, again both of you you know thank you for taking the time uh, is there anything else you want to add before we get out of here yeah we're happy to be part of it thanks for having us on and keep we're glad someone's trailblazing the way and like the hash niche in the podcast game so it's dope for us too yeah thanks for having us on yeah absolutely man and it's weird doing it from texas but in a way it's it's also like keeping it real because we're still uh we're still we're still outlaws here you know if you're in Cali or Colorado in the next few months or whenever, let us know. We'll get you a goodie bag. Sounds good. I'll definitely will, man. Again, I appreciate you guys. If you want to follow 710 on Instagram at 710labs, at 710labs.edu or on their website, 710labs.com. We'll catch you all later. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.